You know, one of the things that uh, one of the things that is difficult when you teach straight through the Bible is that you cannot dodge any subject. <laughs> you can't dodge anything because you're just going straight through the Bible. And today's subject is hell, so we're going to be talking about hell today. I've decided to call it Ten Truths About Hell, and it comes out in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So that's where we're going. Please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. And we're going to be reading verses 19 to 31. Father, I ask for your blessing, the blessing of your spirit upon this gathering, and especially as we open up your inspired and errant word. We pray that it would feed our soul, even when dealing with such a difficult and harsh subject as as everlasting hell. Lord, we pray that it might be a subject this morning that would do us good. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't truly know you, never been born of your spirit, that you might use this message to birth them into your kingdom. And Lord, for those that are saved and walking with you, Lord, may this message do something to impel them to warn the lost to flee from the wrath to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. <clears throat> In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. The central theme of Luke chapter 16 is money and wealth. Jesus begins chapter 16 with a parable about the unrighteous steward. And he tells this parable where there's a rich man who had so much money that he needed to hire a steward to take care of his money for him. But the problem was, the steward that he hired was an unscrupulous man who was squandering his money. Eventually, the rich master found out about it and told his steward that he was going to fire him. And so the steward starts thinking to himself, what in the world am I going to do? I'm ashamed to beg. 
Uh, I don't want to go out and work. What am I going to do? And he, he hit on this brilliant idea. I know what I'll do. I'll go around to my master's clients and each one of them that owes my master some money, I'll tell them to sit down, erase what they owe and write down a lesser figure. If they owe a hundred measures of wheat, or just erase that and write in 80. If they owe a hundred measures of oil, erase that and write in 50. And in this way, I'm going to make friends from all of my master's clients so that when I'm kicked out, these people will take me into their homes and show charity towards me and give me a place to live when I need it. And I won't have to go out and work. So it was a brilliant idea. The man was unscrupulous and Jesus wasn't praising him for his, his unrighteousness. He was praising him for his shrewdness and his cleverness. He was taking his present position and using his present position to set himself up for his future. That's the point. And Jesus is saying in verse 9 that Christians need to be doing exactly the same thing. He says, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So the situation with us is that we need to be using our money to make friends of people who are lost. In other words, we need to be supporting evangelism and missions and using our money to bring people to Christ and to salvation so that when our money fails and we die, those people who are already there in heaven will be welcoming us into the eternal dwellings. In other words, use your money where it counts. Use it for eternity. That was his point. And he ends up the whole discussion in verse 13 by saying, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He didn't say you shouldn't serve God and wealth. He says you can't. Because God and wealth are both masters, the supreme authority, and you're going to bow to one or the other. Now, interestingly, the next verse tells us, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. The word scoff means they were sneering at him, ridiculing him, demeaning Jesus. Why? Because his teaching on money was condemning them. Because they lived for money. That was their God. They loved it above all things. Even though they pretended to be these holy, righteous people, they really, in their hearts, loved money. And Jesus' words were, you know, use your money for the salvation of souls. Give up your money for the betterment of, of other people. Don't serve money, serve God. And so the Pharisees heard this, they listened to it, but instead of bowing humbly beneath it, they scoffed as though it was ridiculous what Jesus was saying. It was stupid. Well, the last section that we're going to be looking at today also deals with wealth. It deals with a rich man and a poor man. And interestingly, the rich man ends up in Hades, which is sort of a pre-hell, and the poor man ends up in Abraham's bosom, which is pre-heaven. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But again, the issue is wealth and how did they use your, their wealth and did the one use his wealth to prepare himself for eternity like Jesus told us in the beginning of the chapter? No, he didn't. And so that's where we're going with this whole section today. I believe what Jesus is doing is he's speaking to the Pharisees who were lovers of money and he was warning them that unless they repented of this love of money, and made God their master, 
they were going to end up in hell for eternity. So he's warning them to flee from the wrath to come, to repent of the sin of idolizing money over him. So it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to these Pharisees. Jesus is doing his dead-level best to get their attention, and he tells this story about one man who dies, goes to Hades, another man who dies and goes to Abraham's bosom. Now, there are problems in interpreting this passage. I'll just say that right up front. One of the problems is we don't know whether it's a parable or a story, a real, actual, live story of people that Jesus knew about. And the reason is because one of the persons is named in the story, Lazarus. Now, I don't believe, I'm, I might be wrong here, but of all the parables that Jesus told, I don't think anybody else was ever given a name, which makes it seem more like an actual situation than a parable. And then another, another thing that makes it difficult to interpret this is because some of it is metaphorical, and it has to be, because these people both died, their bodies stayed here on earth, or one body was buried, one was probably thrown into the garbage heap, but their souls entered in these two different realms, Hades and Abraham's bosom. But in the story, we're told about these souls having uh, tongues, a finger, and eyes. Well, of course, a soul doesn't have any of those things, literally, physically. It's a soul. It's a disembodied spirit. So we, we know that in certain parts of this story, we're going to have to be careful that we don't take it in a wooden, literal fashion. If we do that, we'll miss what Jesus was trying to say. So those are some of the problems with interpreting it. Let's look at the facts concerning the story. Let's look at the rich man for just a minute. Did you notice that no name was given to this man? The poor man's given a name, Lazarus. No name is assigned to the rich man. I believe that's probably intentional on the Lord's part because he's showing that even though he was one of the rich and famous while he lived on the earth and while he had many servants, many employees, if he lived today, he might be on the cover of People magazine. Everybody knows his name. He's like the Bill Gates of the 21st century. As soon as his soul dies and it exits this world, he's totally insignificant. Not even worthy of assigning a name to him. Notice also that it says he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. In other words, he dressed in the finest clothes that were produced in that particular day. Purple was the color of royalty. Kings dressed in purple. And it was very expensive because the only way to get a purple dye in those days was from a, a unique specific shellfish that lived in a certain range of the Mediterranean Sea and you had to... Uh, you had to kill a lot of these shellfish and secrete this thing behind the jaw. I know it's a long story, but anyway, you get a little bit of this dye from each one of those little shellfish, and it took lots and lots of these shellfish to produce enough dye to dye a garment purple. So only the rich could afford purple in that day. He's wearing, he's living in opulence, in extravagance, in luxury. That's the idea. It goes on to say he was joyously living in splendor every day. Habitually, every day. In other words, whatever his soul wanted, he had. A big, nice house, servants to do anything that he didn't want to do. The finest foods were brought to his table. I mean, this man had it all in this lifetime. Joyously living in splendor every single day. Now, notice the poor man. 
We're told in verse 20, and a poor man named Lazarus, the word Lazarus means God is my help, and God was his help. God saved this man's soul. He was laid at his gate covered with sores. Now, does that tell you anything? If he was laid at his gate, it tells you he's a cripple, right? He was laid at his gate because he couldn't walk. So this man, in, in the first century, before there was any social security or there was any disability insurance, in order to survive, either you had to have relatives that would take care of you, so if you were crippled and couldn't work, either relatives took care of you, or um, you would beg. That's the only way to survive in those days. And that's why we had that person at the gate beautiful in Acts chapter 3 begging alms because he was a cripple. There's no other way for him to survive, to get enough food to eat for that day. That's probably the situation of Lazarus. He's covered with sores. He's in constant pain. He's suffering constantly. He longs to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Doesn't say he got to eat any of them. He just wanted to eat them. He was longing. He, he was starving. He was hungry day after day after day. And here's this rich man opening his gate, walking over this fellow who has laid there, never giving him anything to eat, never giving him any money, just totally callous to the needs of this destitute man. And then we have this poor man, and it says here, the dogs were coming and licking his sores. That tells you his pitiful, wretched condition. So, in this lifetime, the rich man had everything. And in this lifetime, the poor man had nothing. But when they both die, everything is reversed. The poor man has nothing. I mean, the poor man has everything, and the rich man has nothing in the life to come. Notice also that it says that the rich man was buried. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. It doesn't tell us the poor man was buried, because he probably wasn't. In Jerusalem, there was a garbage dump. It was called Gehenna. And they would take their garbage. It was a perpetually burning dump. And you'd just take your garbage, throw it over the hill into that burning dump, and it would get burned up. And for a person like this, probably they just took him and tossed him over the side into the dump. He had no money for... He had no relatives to take care of him. There was probably no money for a funeral. So he just topped, tossed into this heap. Whereas the rich man, of course, he has a big, nice burial. Lots of people show up to pay their last respects for this very wealthy, famous individual. Now, we're told that both of them died. What's the result? The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. We know that Abraham was the man, a man of faith. We're told that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was a saved man, so Abraham was in heaven. This man is carried away into his bosom. So the picture here is of Father Abraham comforting this poor, crippled sufferer, now that he's finally been released from his suffering, and he's comforting him now in heaven. But on the other hand, verse 23 says, in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, what in the world is Hades? We have to understand that because that's where this rich man went. So, Hades is a place for disembodied spirits during this particular time period before the final judgment, and it's sort of a holding place for the damned spirits. 
My understanding is that if a person is saved, their spirit immediately goes to the presence of the Lord in heaven. But if you're not saved, your spirit goes into this place called Hades. It's kind of like what jail is to a prison. If someone's convicted of a crime, they're put in jail. But there's this sentencing up here that the judge has to do. So jail's temporary until they go before the judge and receive their sentence. And after they receive their sentence, now they're put into prison. Well, hell is like prison because it goes on forever. Hades is sort of a pre-hell. It's sort of being in jail, waiting for your prison sentence to actually take place. Just like heaven has an intermediate heaven right now, sort of a pre-heaven, where the souls of those who die go to be in the immediate presence of Christ, but that's not the ultimate, eternal heaven. The ultimate heaven is going to be the new earth that we're told in 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 22. God is going to destroy the present heavens and the earth and create a new heavens and a new earth, and we're going to dwell with Christ in righteousness and rule and reign with Him forever. So this heaven that people are in now, that's sort of a pre-heaven, an intermediate heaven. Well, Hades is sort of a pre- or intermediate hell. But the thing you need to notice is that the nature of Hades and the nature of the punishment in hell appear to be the same. Here, he is in torment and flames. Well, hell is called the lake of fire or a furnace of fire. So the nature of the punishment that goes on in each one of these places seems to be, from Scripture, identical. Torment. This morning, what I want to do is take the remainder of our time and just talk to you about the subject of hell. Because that's really what Jesus was warning this rich man about. Basically, he's saying, Mr. Rich Man, you don't want to go to this place. And if you knew what it was like, you would do anything to escape it. And so listen up and heed my words, Mr. Rich Man. So I'm going to give you 10 different truths about hell this morning. Only at the bridge, right? <laughs> okay, number one, hell is real. It's the first thing you need to know about hell. It's not fictitious. It's a real state or place. Look at verse 24, no, 23. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. I know a lot of people, when, when I talk to people on the streets or knock on their door and we have a conversation about heaven and hell, I invariably hear this. Well, hell is what we're going through right now. As though this life is all the hell there's ever going to be. They've got a really rude awakening them, for them. You know, I've become fascinated in the last few weeks with listening to documentaries on YouTube. And I've been going back into World War II and watching these documentaries on the Nazi concentration camps and Auschwitz. And there is one called A Day in the Life of Auschwitz. Fascinating what people endured during that time. And if anything, on this life could be in any way equated with hell, it would probably be those Nazi concentration camps. But folks, that's nothing compared to what ultimate hell is going to be like. You can't compare anything in this life, no matter how bad it gets, with what's headed for those who rebel against Jesus Christ and will not submit to Him and will not trust Him. Also, a lot of people say, well, when I die, I'm just going to cease to exist. It's not true. Did the rich man cease to exist? No. He's fully alive. He's fully conscious and he's in torment. He didn't cease to exist. 
I just read a statistic recently. 40% of Americans don't believe in hell. Well, that's interesting. 60% do. That surprised me. I would, I would think on some subjects so terrible as hell, you'd probably have 99% of Americans not believing that it exists. But people know. The majority of Americans do realize there is a hell to come. But out of all those 60% that do believe in hell, only one out of 200 of them believe that they're actually going to go there. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to where? Destruction, hell. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, eternal life. And few, few are those who find eternal life. So many people, according to Jesus, are going to go down the, rod, the broad way that leads to hell. Only a few are going to find the narrow way that leads to life. And yet, it is, it's, t t it's upside down. The majority of people believe that, yeah, there's a hell, but I'm not going there. Decide. They're deceived. They're, it's self-deception. People, if they would read in the Bible what hell is like, of course they wouldn't want to believe that they're ever going to end up there. But those are the sad facts that many, many people will end up in this place. Hell is real. Number two, hell is a place of torment. And we've already read that in verse 23, but look at verse 24. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in what? I'm in agony in this flame. Agony. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he has been comforted here, and you are in agony. Look at verse 28. The rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus back to his five brothers so they don't ever go to this place. He says, For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now these are the words of Scripture to describe this place. Agony and torment. So I'm not making this up. I mean, a lot of people like to criticize people who believe in hell. But all we're doing is reading this thing and trying to make sense out of it. Agony, torment. And he describes himself as being in flames. A lot of people say, well, I'm not really worried about hell because I'm just going to go down there and just party with all my friends. We're just going to party forever. Well, number one, there's going to be no party there. Number two, you're not going to have any friends there. You're going to be in outer darkness. One of the worst, uh, one of the worst things you can do for a prisoner to break his will is to put him in, cons uh, in solitary confinement where it's pitch black and he doesn't know what time it is and he, you leave him there for days and days on end. Some people go crazy in that. Hell is kind of like that. It's like a, an eternal solitary confinement. There's no other people to comfort you or cheer you. It's pitch black, outer darkness, and yet all the time you're in agony. You're in torment. So hell is real. Hell is a place of torment. Number three, hell is a place where people are conscious. In this passage, the rich man is conscious of what's going on, isn't he? Because he's asking questions. Father Abraham, please, send Lazarus and 
have him dip the, the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. I'm in agony in these flames. He's conscious of what's going on around him. Now, there's a doctrine that some Christian groups hold called soul sleep. Have you ever heard of that doctrine before? This is the, the doctrine that if a person dies, their soul sleeps until the final resurrection, and they're conscious of nothing. So if you're saved, you wake up at the final resurrection to be glorified in heaven. And most of these groups don't even believe in hell. They believe in an annihilation. But what I want you to see here is that this person isn't sleeping. His soul is not asleep. His soul is fully awake in this place. Think of the time in your life when you experience the greatest pain or suffering. Is there a time that just instantly comes to you? Man, that hurt like nothing else I've ever experienced. <laughs> Childbirth? <laughs> yeah, I wondered if that was going to be it. So for me, I think the time would be when I was 13 years old and I was playing baseball and I got beaned right in the nose, broke my nose, blood everywhere. My nose swelled up to two or three times its normal size. And like three days later, they took me to the doctor. And so the doctor says, yep, yeah, it's broke. And we're going to have to re-break it and reset it. And so he stuck these needles up my nose. They were supposed to deaden the pain. They didn't deaden any pain. <laughs> took the needles out, took some pliers and went, <laughs> straightened it out, stuck gauze up into it for about three weeks. Pulled the gauze out. But I tell you, I never experienced pain like that when he's twisting those pliers and re-breaking my nose. But think if, if the rest of your eternity was experiencing that level of pain and it never stopped. I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Over in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, it says, They shall have no rest day or night. It's like being in pain, suffering, not for just a few minutes or even a few hours or a few days. It just goes on and it goes on and it goes on. So it is a place of conscious torment. Number four, hell is a place of punishment for sin. That comes out in verse 25. Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. In other words, implied in this is the reason, rich man, you are there, and poor man, you are over there, is because, Mr. Rich Man, you had all your good things during your life. And you didn't share them at all. You were greedy. You were covetous. You were unloving. You were unconcerned about people around you that were in, in pain and suffering and destitute. You were selfish, you didn't give any of your goods to help other people, you had everything in your previous life, and so that's why you ended up here, and this poor man ends up there. Now, we need to avoid the mistake of thinking that this, this man went to Hades simply because he was rich, and the guy went to heaven simply because he was poor. That's not true. Even Abraham, who's mentioned in the story, was very rich. Job was rich, and he was a wealthy man. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. Just because you have money doesn't mean you're going to hell. And just because you're poor doesn't mean you're going to heaven. <laughs> the, the universal testimony of Scripture is those who have faith in Jesus Christ will be saved, and those who don't will not. But he evidenced his lack of faith in God and His Word by showing no concern for anyone else but himself. A completely self-centered individual. He had to walk over this person every day just to open his gate and there he was, 
and he does nothing for him day after day after day. So for his sins of selfishness, covetousness, unconcerned for the poor, he ends up in this place called Hades. Matthew 25, 46 says, these are the words of Jesus, these shall go away into eternal punishment. So hell is a place of punishment. Just as we punish criminals by locking them up in prison for the rest of their life, sometimes we execute them. Hell, God also is just, and even though sinners get away with a lot during this life, eventually there's going to come a day of reckoning as God is going to punish evil. There's going to be a settling of the score one day. And that's actually good news. It would be bad news to know that people who are rapists and serial murders uh, are going to get away with that, and there's never going to be any day of reckoning for their crimes. Hell is real. It's a place of torment. It's where people are conscious. It's a place of punishment for sin. Number five, hell is a place with no possibility of escape. Look at verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, there's this great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. So once a person is in Hades, their fate is sealed. They're not going to be able ever to escape that place and go to heaven. And people who are in heaven are never going to leave heaven and go down to hell. <laughs> once you die... Your fate is fixed and it cannot be reversed, according to Jesus' words here in verse 26. Now this, this refutes a lot of modern day theories or traditions of men. One of those theories is the theory of annihilationism. Have you heard of this? Sometimes it's called conditional immortality or conditional mortality. And the idea is basically that when a person dies, if they die unsaved, they may go to a place of punishment for a period of time, but after God sees that they paid for their sins, He will just wipe their existence off the face of the map. They'll cease to exist from that time on. They'll be annihilated. Um, well, the only thing I guess I can say from this passage is that Jesus never hints that this rich man one day is going to be annihilated and somehow cease to exist. Uh, it's not in the passage at all, and it's never explicitly taught anywhere in the Scripture, and there are some verses that would refute that. The one I just mentioned, Matthew twenty-five forty-six: These will go away into eternal punishment, and the righteous into eternal life. Now, the same Greek word, ionios, is used for punishment and life. These will go away into eternal punishment, and the righteous will go away into, the very same word, eternal life. So if heaven is eternal then I'm afraid that hell has got to be eternal as well. So that's the first doctrine of man, annihilationism. The second one is purgatory. I grew up as a good Catholic. I was taught that there was a purgatory, that most people were not good enough to go straight to heaven, so they would go off to purgatory. And in purgatory, God is going to punish you temporarily, but then you, eventually you'll escape. And once your sins are purged and burned up, then you'll escape and you'll be able to go to heaven. And that used to scare me to death as a kid, because I knew I, I had sinned. I knew I'd done things wrong. I didn't want to go to purgatory. In fact, I remember telling my little brother Kenny about purgatory one day, and he just started to cry. I mean, we're about five or six years old, and I mean, he took that thing to heart, and he, he just started to bawl. <laughs> 
But my, the good news is purgatory is not in the Bible. Hell's in the Bible, but purgatory is not in there. The rich man has never even hinted at the possibility that he will somehow escape one day and get to heaven. In fact, he's told he never will. There's a chasm. There's this great chasm, so nobody can cross over from one side to the other. The thing that's really damaging about the idea of purgatory is it really devalues the work of Jesus Christ. Because the doctrine of purgatory says that we need to be punished in order to have our souls redeemed and finally end up in the presence of God. The work of Jesus wasn't enough to do it. We need to go and be punished ourselves to add to what Jesus did on the cross, and then somehow, between those two things, we'll end up making it into God's presence. It's blasphemy to devalue Jesus and his work like that. Jesus' work is once and for all completely sufficient. He said it is finished when he died, and he meant it. Everything necessary to save our souls was done by Jesus Christ. So, annihilationism, purgatory, there's another one, universalism. Universalism is the doctrine that everybody is ultimately saved. And in some branches of this, even the demons and Satan get to be saved too. Uh, the problem with that is that it's not biblical. <laughs> we just read the verse in Matthew 25, 46. These are going to go away into eternal punishment, right? I mean, right out of the lips of Jesus. We have the example of this rich man. He wasn't saved. He's in Hades and he can never cross over into heaven. So universalism is categorically untrue. A fourth theory is that at death, everybody gets a second chance. Like if you didn't believe in Jesus in this life, God is so merciful that he's going to give you another chance once you die. Did the rich man get another chance? Nope. The Bible says that after death, there comes judgment. That's what awaits you after death. Not a second chance, but judgment. So, hell is a place where there is no possibility of escape. Number six, hell is a place where the damned cry out. Look at verse 24. And he cried out, and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. People cry out in hell. People are crying for mercy there. They're not crying out out of remorse or out of repentance, or out of praise and worship. They're not crying out out of faith. They're crying out simply that someone would do something to relieve their sufferings. But they're crying out in hell. Jesus said, In that place there shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's this crying out that will go on. Number seven, hell is a place of no mercy. We get that because the rich man says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus just to give one drop of water. But Abraham says, Child, remember, you had all your good things during your life. Lazarus had all his bad things. Now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. He cries out for mercy and what does he get? Nothing. No mercy. Now, it's kind of... Kind of just, don't you think? He showed no mercy at all to this poor man laid at his gate every single day, never helping him, never giving him a crumb from his table. And now he receives no mercy. In fact, that reminds me of James 2.13. 
listen to this word. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, the Spirit teaches you to be merciful. But if you show no mercy to anybody, do not be surprised when you receive no mercy. So hell is a place of no mercy. For the believer, this life is the closest he will ever get to hell. But for the unbeliever, this life is the closest he'll ever get to heaven. There'll be no mercy once he dies. Number eight. Hell is a place where people remember their earthly lives. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember. Remember. Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. Evidently, when you're in hell, you can remember what happened on earth. Remember, you lived a life of luxury and opulence. While you didn't care at all about anybody else around you. Remember that. And in hell, people will remember a lot. That'll be a lot of the agony, I think, of hell, is they will be recalling their life where they'll, they'll recall every opportunity that was given them to repent. Every sermon they heard where the preacher told them they needed to repent of their sin. They'll recall all of the sins they ever committed. They'll think about them. They will recall all the offers of mercy that were given to them in the gospel when people preached that Christ was a full and sufficient Savior for any who would trust Him. They'll remember all of those things. They'll remember every squandered opportunity to turn from a life of sin and give themselves to Jesus Christ. And they'll, they'll be filled with regret, but know that there is absolutely nothing they can do about it. I remember Judy, mom, telling me a, a story, and I'll probably get the story wrong, so you can correct it later if I do it, but it was about Walgreens stock. Remember the story? And somebody told you, and was it Pop, that you should buy this stock when it was real young and new and am I getting that right? You're close. Okay. That's close enough. Okay. Well, you had a chance when Walgreens was just a very new chain of these pharmacy stores and someone was urging her, hey, put, put your money down in Walgreens stock and you do good. And they decided not to do it. But now she'd be a rich woman if she had invested in Walgreens stock. <laughs> well, that's a little bit like this situation here. You're looking back on missed opportunities and, and there's nothing you can do to change your present. But you still can't help but remember. Remember your sin. Remember opportunities to repent. Remember the gospel that was preached and remember that you did nothing about that. Number nine. Hell is a place inhabited by the unrepentant. We're going to have to look at verses 27 to 30 here. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that, they, that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. At least there was one good thing about this guy. He cared about his five brothers. It's about the one good thing you could say about him. There was an, an earthly family love that he had for his brothers. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will, what? Repent. Do you know, this guy in hell has a better understanding of theology than a lot of Christians do. 
because there are a lot of Christians who don't even believe you have to repent to escape hell. This rich man understands now that he's in hell that the one thing he didn't do that he needed to have done was to repent of his sin. There are preachers that tell you all you need to be saved is simple faith in Christ. And what they mean by that is simply uh, confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord and having this belief in your heart that changes nothing about your life. They'll say you don't have to repent. That's legalism. What you need to do is trust in Jesus. And that's all you need. And to them, if you pray the sinner's prayer, it doesn't matter how many people you've murdered and whether you're in prison and whether you're going to be executed for your crimes. I mean, none of that matters. As long as you pray the prayer, you're saved in some of these extreme forms of Christianity. Well, this rich man, he understands that that's a pack of lies. He says, what my brothers need to do, they need to repent. Now, it is true that the condition of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. But you have to understand the nature of the kind of faith that saves. If we understand the nature of saving faith, we'll understand that it is never divorced from repentance. It's like you take a, a quarter. You've got heads and you've got tails. Well, when you come to the condition of salvation, you've got faith and you've got repentance. And they both go together every time. So, if it's real faith, it's penitent faith. And if it's real repentance, it's believing repentance. Those two things cannot be divorced from each other. Saving faith includes the idea of repentance. And so, hell is going to be inhabited by unrepentant people. That's why Jesus says in Luke 13, 3, I tell you, no, but unless you likewise Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, according to Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do you see that if you don't repent, you'll perish in these verses? When Paul was at Mars Hill in Acts 17 in Athens, he said, God is now commanding that all men everywhere should repent. Why? Because God has fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world and he's going to judge you. And if you want to escape judgment, you must repent. So if we don't repent, we'll one day be in the same place that this rich man was in. We must repent. Number 10. Hell can be avoided only by heeding God's word. Look at verse 29 to 31. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, Moses and the prophets. What is he talking about there? What is that? The Old Testament. The Scripture. The Scripture. That's all the people had that Jesus was talking to. That was their Bible. He's saying, they have the Bible. That's all they need. They don't need someone rising from the dead and telling them that hell exists. They have the Bible. And God has spelled out very clearly in Scripture how someone can avoid hell by repenting and putting their faith in God and His Word. So here, Jesus makes it very explicit not only do you need to repent, but you need to heed God's word. You need to heed, which means you need to listen and act on the word of God.
That's what Abraham did. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He didn't just believe in God, he believed God. God spoke, he believed God. He counted God's word as true, and God counted to him righteousness. He was justified in God's sight. So what is God's word concerning escaping hell? When the jailer was woke up at midnight, and he saw all the prison doors open, he took a sword and was really ready to kill himself, and Paul dropped down before him and said, don't do yourself any harm, we're all here. And really shaken up, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And you remember the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Believe. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's either believing or disobeying. Those two things are opposite. You see, believing implies there's going to be some changes to the life. Because the opposite of believing is not disbelieving, it's disobeying. Did you catch that in that verse? So this true saving faith is going to usher in a new life. Changed life. A life of obedience to Christ. So hell can be avoided only by heeding the word of God. Which tells us to put your faith in Christ and turn from a life of sin. Let's go over those one more time. Hell is real. Hell is a place of torment. Hell is a place where people are conscious. Hell is a place of punishment for sin. It's a place with no possibility of escape. It's a place where the damned cry out. It's a place where there is no mercy. It's a place where we will remember our earthly lives, if we're unfortunate enough to actually end up there. It's a place inhabited by the unrepentant, and it can be avoided only by heeding God's word. Now, there's one little detail I wanted you to see. Verse 24, he cried out and said, what? Father Abraham. What does that tell you about this particular rich man? He's a Jew. He's Jewish. Did his Jewishness save him? No. As a good Jew, I'm sure he attended synagogue. He believed in God, believed in the existence of God probably knew a lot of the Torah, a lot of the Old Testament scripture, but he was unsaved. And never feel secure simply because you go to church, you believe in God, and you call yourself a Christian. Anybody can call themselves anything. Anybody can attend a church service. Anybody can, I mean, 98% of, of Americans, I think, believe that there is some kind of a higher power or God out there. That doesn't mean anything. This man had no saving relationship to his God. And so the mistake we need to flee from is the mistake of thinking that all is well simply because I'm a religious person, I believe there's a God, I attend meetings here at the bridge, that means I must be going to heaven. No, it doesn't mean that. Are you, have you been converted? Have you been born again by the Holy Spirit? Are you a different person than you once were? Has God given you a new nature? Do you love the things that God loves and do you hate the things that God hates?
Are you striving for holiness? Are you striving to please your master, your Lord? Those are the kind of things you should be asking yourself to find out whether you're saved or not. A mere confession means nothing. Don't, don't say, well, I was baptized at this age, or I take Holy Communion. You can do all of that the rest of your life, and it doesn't mean that you're a Christian. You need to be united to Jesus Christ in a saving way where His life flows into you and you become a new person. I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Okay, that's, that's what you need to have experientially taking place in your life to avoid what we're talking about. Now let me just ask those of you who are Christians, do you believe in what the Bible says about hell in this passage? Do you believe that? I'm sure all of you will nod your head and say yes, but I don't think it's all that easy. Do you think someone can really believe what the Bible says about hell and never talk to other people and warn them to escape from that place? And yet professing Christians do that all the time. Day after day, week after week, month after month, they just stay quiet. They don't talk to anybody. They're not purposeful about telling people the way they can escape from this horrible, dreadful, frightening, awful place that people will go. Millions and millions of people will end up there because they will not repent and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. If you're driving down the road and you pass your brother's house and all of a sudden you look over there and it's all up in flames, are you just going to keep on driving? No, you're going to stop your car, you're going to run out, you're going to start screaming, Get out of that house while you've got time. You'll be dialing 911 and calling the police and calling the fire department. Well, you can say you believe anything you want, but if it doesn't affect your life, you don't really believe it. Does this doctrine of hell affect you? Is there anything different about the way you live because this place is real and people are going there? That's what you need to ask yourself. May God help us to take seriously... Heaven is wonderful. I loved, in fact, I'm reading a book right now on heaven. Love it. But there is also another reality here. The reality of hell. And we need to take it seriously, folks. Father, would you please help us to, to be diligent, to warn others around us, people that we love, neighbors, friends, people we work with, to flee from the wrath to come, to flee to Christ, to cast themselves on His mercy while there is time. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. I pray, Father, that You would help us help us to do these things, Lord. Anything else is we're living a lie. We're making profession. We're living like hypocrites. We're putting a mask over our face, pretending to be Christians while we don't care. We're, we're doing the same thing the rich man did. We're stumbling over people who are destitute and never helping them. Oh God, forgive us. All of us here are guilty of times when you have directed us to speak and we've been silent out of fear. Forgive us, Lord. And we pray that you'd help us to honor you in our lives by speaking up for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.